Hello, frazzled women. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. As many of you know, this is the virtual lounge for type A's, imposters, overscheduling addicts, and I am your host and salonier, Kara Martin-Snyder. Heads up, everyone. This podcast features adult women having adult conversation, and sometimes we cuss. So if you have little ones around or folks around that won't appreciate that kind of language, it's probably a good time to hit pause and grab some headphones. And if that person is you, I totally understand. I just want to give you the option to keep listening or fade out. As many of you listening know, my job, which I take pretty seriously as podcast host and salonier, is to introduce all of you listening to women who are not letting bullshit or burnout slow them down. And so they're across different industries, and I've met a lot of these women just through the flotsam and jetsam and heard their stories and thought they would be great people to share their stories with you. And my job is to ask lots of questions and see what we can learn from their life experience. And so hopefully you enjoy today's episode. And I'm going to introduce you to Erin Mama Barra. Erin describes herself, or at least on her website, the catch-all for what she does is creative Swiss Army knife. That's because she does a lot of things at the intersection of tech and creativity. Literally, she's an artist, a writer, a producer, an instrumentalist. She's an Ableton product specialist for you beat-making junkies listening. And she's the creator of Beats by Girls, which is started out of the Lower East Side Girls Club. She's also, by vocation, an associate professor at Berkeley, where she teaches songwriting. And she's also a board member of Women in Music in Boston. So Erin is a woman who is making a lot of things happen. And we're going to talk about some of these roles and how they came to be. And, you know, I think what's really interesting about this interview is Erin really gives us an up close and personal look at transitions she's had to navigate in, in terms of her identity and balancing these different roles and how kind of one turned into another, which is so fascinating. And we, we can really learn a lot from her journey. And she also shares about a healing journey in her own life and tools and practices and things that have worked really well for helping her stay a non-anxious, happy person. And I think that's, we all can learn something from hearing these stories from other women. So we are going to unpack a lot because Erin is also a very like-minded woman in terms of being a troubleshooter. And she's also a deep supporter of gender equity for women. So there's so much in this episode and I, I really want to encourage you to listen and take it all in and maybe take some notes or take something away that you can try in your own life from everything that we talk about today. And before I turn this over to the interview. I also really just want to say thank you. This podcast, being able to interview all of these super cool, smart, and interesting women is a 
total labor of love for me. And what keeps me going is knowing that all of you are listening. So I I deeply want to thank every single one of you that comes back and listens to another episode or shares it on Facebook or shares it with a friend. And it's just helps spreading the word about the conversations we're having here in Le Vital Core Salon. So many thanks to all of you. And if you want to make sure that you're hearing about podcasts when they roll out, one way to do that is to sign up for the newsletter. So if if that's something important to you, just that little ping in your inbox a couple of times a month to let you know there's a new episode that's out, you can sign up by going to levitalcore, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. And you can scroll down to the bottom of pretty much any page on the entire website and click on get emails from me. Not only will you be notified of recent podcast episodes to roll out, you'll also get hopefully helpful strategies for making health and lifestyle change in your own life. And I try to keep them practical and simple and often cheap. Um, You know, sometimes it's, it's just a couple minute exercise or a way of thinking of something different. So again, you'll get all that and you can sign up on the website and I'd love to connect with you in that way. And as you can tell, I like to babble sometimes, but I know you want to hear what Aaron is doing. So voila, here's the interview. Hey, Aaron, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so awesome for you to take time out today and share from your experiences and everything you're doing, which is a lot, which we'll come to find out in a moment. So it's it's really a delight to have you here. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. You're welcome. You're welcome. And Erin, I went to your website and I fell in love with your sort of overall title that you are a creative Swiss army knife. <laughs> Can you help the audience listening understand what a creative Swiss army knife does? Yeah, yeah, I wish I could take credit for coming up with that, but it was actually this like branding expert who had helped me um, because for a long time I had trouble defining what it is that I do since it's kind of macroscopic in, in a lot of ways. But when I try to explain it to people, I work at the intersection of technology and creativity in any sort of music setting. So if it's studios, stages, uh, classrooms, writing rooms, kind of like any application of creativity and technology within that spectrum. Um, I, I just do really well in those situations. Wow, because when I was researching and getting ready for this interview, I was blown away. Like I started seeing the list of like all the hats that you wear on a regular basis. I mean, everything from artist and writer. Ableton product specialist, which maybe you can take a minute and explain what Ableton is for the the non-tech crowd. And you're the creator of Beats by Girls. You're a professor. Like, you're doing so many amazing things in the world. Well, thanks. (laughs) I appreciate that. Which of the roles are the ones that, that take up the most space in your life these days? It's sort of kind of shifts gears depending on what time of the year it is. So when 
Berkeley's in session. You know, I'm a full-time associate professor there. So there's a 16-week period of time in the fall and 16 weeks in the spring where I'm pretty much all consumed by teaching. And I really love my job there and I love what I do. And then in between, all the in-between times, it kind of switches over to, um, I do a lot of freelancing for different tech companies. So, you know, this summer I'll be doing a lot of traveling and working for different people, taking on private clients. So I do a lot of kind of like random projects. That's when I have the most time to do those things. I'm only on campus three days a week, actually. So it does allow me a pretty good amount of time to invest in other things I'm interested in and I usually try to make music in between that period because it seems to make me the happiest. <laughs> so that's kind of how you balance yourself to make sure that you're balancing the teaching with the, your own creativity. Yeah, it was when I first got the Berkeley gig, I was obviously very overjoyed, but there was kind of the subtext of fear that, you know, what was going to happen to my career so I make a really concerted effort to stay relevant and to stay engaged in the music industry. Um, you know, it's it's partly fear-based, but then I also think it just adds, it, it adds to my overall value as a creative person. What are some of those values for you? My In, in terms of my career? In terms of being a creative person. You mentioned that you had values kind of defined for yourself right there. Well, I think what makes a creative person valuable <laughs> in, in some, in some ways to work with is, you know, somebody that has experience and can back it up. So, you know, a, a lot of my peers at the college that have been here, let's say, you know, these are jobs that people don't often let go of. So if you've been doing it, if you've been teaching for 40 years, there's, there's some sort of period of time where maybe you dis disengaged from your actual craft, um, and you didn't keep up with the technology changing and the industry changing. And I, I think it's really important to stay current and to stay relevant so that the information that I'm exchanging with these students is, is, is relevant to them right now, today. So, you know, I just try to, I try to know what's going on. <laughs> and maybe that sounds like something an old person would say, but... <laughs> But I, it's true, you know, it's true. So what I'm hearing is you're just trying to stay congruent and making sure that you're still walking your talk so that you aren't just coming at teaching from this purely theoretical place or what used to be the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I was just on a panel the other day and the, the title of it was Practice What You Teach instead of Practice What You Preach. <laughs> and it was about people who, and, and how, you know, you can go online and get so much information about how to do anything, um, anything in any kind of paradigm. And a lot of people are looking towards, like, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen those master classes, things where it's like, learn how to uh, score films from Hans Zimmer, or whatever. And, and so this idea of the, the professional who's actually the person doing also becoming the person that's teaching I think is a is like kind of the new sort of educator and I feel like I fall into that category of the person who also does the things they teach another person to do instead of siloing those two ideas. Got it. And it's super important and there is definitely a parallel in my work as a health and lifestyle strategist. I mean, I've been through elimination diets. I know 
what that looks, feels like. I know all the emotions that come up. And I think those kinds of things are super important. And to use your word of valuable, because you're not just like, well, the the next 10 steps for creating this change in your life are, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Go ahead. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's never it's never just about the steps, right? There's all the other stuff that comes in around it. Well, I think the most valuable part of that is knowing about what happens when it goes wrong. You know, <laughs> it's like all of those mistakes. If you if you didn't have all the the bad experiences with the good experiences, like that's that's value. You know, what happens when it goes wrong? So, are you a natural born troubleshooter as well? No, I don't think so. I I didn't really even it start engaging with technology until like my early twenties, and I was sort of against it to be honest for a long time because I was a very like purist analog musician <laughs> uh, for a long time, and just at some point I kind of got sick of not being in control of things, and yeah, just decided I was going to figure it out and. It, there was like an actual moment where I just said, like, no more of this. I'm going to figure it out myself. And, you know, through doing that repeatedly over and over for years, I, I got really good at solving problems quickly. Got it. So it was from pretty much baptism by fire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Erin, <laughs> has, has music always been a part of your life? You said technology kind of came in based on need in your 20s. Yeah, I have. Actually, I was really lucky that my parents, they put me in a music preschool when I was really little. So I was about four years old when I started kind of learning about music. And that's when I started taking piano lessons. And I guess I was one of those people who didn't stop doing that. (laughs) Um, But my father, he's an audiophile and he actually, he tunes rooms um, so it's like kind of this hybrid acoustic engineer and high fidelity listener. So he works for a few speaker companies and they're really expensive and uh, heavy, heavy things to buy. There's like these 900 pound speakers. And so he will travel with them and go into these rooms and then, you know, test the acoustics of the space and find like the perfect place for these speakers to sit because you can't move them after they sit where they're sitting. Um, yes, because at 900 pounds, they're not going anywhere. Exactly. So he he's just got a really great set of ears. And we always had a listening room in my home uh, where he was always trying out new gear and like flipping out different pieces of technology. So there was always you know, I was always surrounded by music technology, but I was more of a listener back then. I wasn't really engaged in the, the making. I was just more on the receiving end. Um, but I was definitely kind of surrounded by sound for my whole life and at a really high fidelity as well, which I think is kind of rare. Which is mind blowing to me. Sort of a weird segue. I had dated someone for a couple of years back in my 20s who worked in the audiophile stereo equipment space. And I remember getting to, like sometimes when we had traveled, if there was one of his clients that had a listening room or a studio you know, we would pop in and, you know, he would be talking business with the person. And a lot of times I got to pack some vinyl or I got to pack some music with me and I could just hang out in the listening room while he was transacting business. And it 
opened like a whole nother portal in my head. Like these, like some of these albums that I had listened to, you know, a hundred times to then hear them on equipment, like you're talking about in a room specifically set up for them. It just, it made my brain feel like it was going to melt out of its, one of my ears. (laughs) Yeah, it's a totally different experience. Definitely. Wow. So you had that experience growing up and then you were learning in this, in this milieu as well. Yeah, totally. We still, I still, when I go home, you know, my dad, it's like (laughs) the penance for having been supported as a musician through my youth. I have to go and spend hours with him and we're like tuning his room. It's like, what do you think about everything below 100 Hertz? Do you think it sounds clear? (laughs) Cause now we can have these conversations when I was younger, we, we, we couldn't, you know, And, and now that I have all this, additional knowledge. We spend a lot of time kind of talking about music and technology together. It's great. That's amazing. I like, but it's penance for you. <laughs> it is, yeah, it, it kind of is. I feel like I'm, it's, I'm, it's not by, uh, he's forcing me to do it. I, I love it, but it's not by choice. That's for sure. Well, that is such an, it's probably not intense. Intense isn't the right word, but it's, you're listening in such an active way. And then also I imagine the technology piece of the conversation is quite heavy as well. It can get there. Definitely. (laughs) And so piano was kind of your gateway into music. Did you pick up other instruments along the way or how did, how did the rest of the history with music go? Um, I pretty much just kind of exclusively played the piano all the way through college. I mean, I started singing in college, but I never really was given any instruction on how to do that properly. I just started doing it because I, um, I started writing in my like late teens and just needed somebody to sing my songs. And so I just started singing them myself. Yeah. So it kind of went from piano playing into composing and the piano is a really just perfect tool as a composer. Um, then I started singing and then after that point I realized that I needed somebody to record my music for me. And then I started doing that again, largely just because I needed somebody to do it. And so I just started doing it myself. So every kind of move that I made along my musical career was in retrospect, just largely out of sheer necessity and like lack of resources. Got it. We are very similar women. I think a lot of the training that I've done you know, after leaving my finance life behind and moving to the health and lifestyle space, it was like, well, I've had three clients that have asked me this same question. Like, maybe it's time to go back and study this more and really get into the weeds with it. And then, you know, over the course of the last eight years, it's been the same thing. It's interesting. And it's, but it's so fulfilling, right? I mean, do you find like that continued learning is so important? Yeah, I I love it. I'm, the more you teach, the more you learn too. So yeah, I don't, you got to keep going, got to keep going. (laughs) And how do you keep going? Right? Because I'm I'm hearing like, all of these things you're doing. And actually, maybe before we jump to that question, I want to ask you about Beats by Girls. How did that come to be? Well, almost inadvertently, in some ways, um, kind of at the tail end of my career as an artist, because there was a a large period of time when I was just exclusively pursuing that one goal. 
and I was going to release my last album and it just at a certain point kind of making music and asking people to listen to it became, it just started feeling disingenuous in, in some sense. And so I, I knew I wanted to get this music out there, but I, I wanted to find some other kind of vehicle to, I don't know, to attach it to in, in some way. And it's actually the same branding expert that I worked with um, who came up with my, my creative Swiss army knife title. We were in a meeting and you know, we were just talking about how people view me because in a sense there was some point when people stopped viewing me as an artist and they started viewing me as a woman in technology, a woman in music technology. And it's not really something that I specifically set out. <laughs> like that's not a role I chose to play. Um, and so, you know, it was really a response to the way that my audience was viewing me. They're like, you know, they knew I made music, but they, I think they were almost more interested in the fact of how I was making that music and, and what I was using to make it. So, you know, we decided that it would be a good idea to kind of pair that role that I had been cast into with this music. And so we used, uh, we did a crowdfunding campaign, you know, using the album to sort of fund the original idea of Beats by Girls and it was pretty explosive. We, we didn't hit our goal, but before we finished fundraising, we got picked up by a really large nonprofit in New York called the Lower East Side Girls Club. And they decided to incubate Beats by Girls. So it just kind of went from this <laughs> brief idea of like, wow, we should really do something <laughs> like this to all of a sudden we had a location, you know, we had facilities, we had resources, we had technology and it was happening kind of overnight. So it was sort of one of those buckle up, holy shit, this is happening moments in life. Yeah, it was <laughs> nuts. And then, you know, the album released and then I was pretty much exclusively working in, you know, audio from then on out. And it was not something I anticipated. Are you a planner by nature? I mean, I think having a plan is a really important thing, but... I don't believe that plans ever execute the way that you, <laughs> the way that you imagine them to. So, you know, I'll, I'll set goals, but then I'll, I, I like to be agile and compromise with myself. That's, and that's something I didn't used to do when I was younger. And so I, I think that's maybe why I've been more successful later in life. <laughs> Is that partly like when you were sort of thrust into this role as woman in technology while you were probably devoting a lot more of your energy and creativity towards being an artist. What was that friction like for you? Is that where you learned that lesson? Those were some really tough years. And it's it's easy to kind of see this now. But at the time, I had actually been pretty unhappy for, I'd say, three years before I stopped really touring and releasing records. And I had verbalized it to a few people, you know, saying like, I don't think I want to sing anymore, or I don't know if I really like this. And, and people would just stare at me with these blank faces, like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, this is, this is what, this is who you are, <laughs> you know? And it, it was like an identity I had almost created for myself. 
And I bought into it so much. And, you know, they were goals that I had set for myself when I was much younger. And they were attached to really specific um, kind of benchmarks. And then once I achieved those, I realized that I was still just wildly unhappy. But it's really difficult to let go of an identity, especially one that you one that you create when you're like in your late teens, early 20s. So letting go of who I was and kind of becoming this person that I am now was a very difficult mental transition, definitely. Um, and I still get pangs of it sometimes. And I'm like, oh, but if I had just, if I had only, you know, like, who knows? Yes. <laughs> but it's, it gets less and less difficult to deal with those emotions as the years pass. What helped you in that moment? Because I know hearing this, I know there are listeners who might be in that that sort of funk right now. Like, this is what I worked my whole life to do. This is what, you know, I even if any of my, my personal clients are listening, I know that there are women who have gone to school for four, five, eight years to do this one thing and then kind of do it for a little bit and realize, oh God, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> what helped you turn that around and get comfortable with that shifted identity? I think that, I mean, this is going to sound perhaps lame, but... <laughs> there, remember, we're in a no judgment zone here. <laughs> kind of around that time when I was going through the inadvertent transition, I also met my husband. And I think in a lot of ways, I had actually mentally made space for him in my life because I was unable to maintain relationships up until that point. Um, you know, even though I had wanted to have them, I just, I was traveling a lot. I was very selfishly absorbed in my career. And right around that time, I, I met him and he has been kind of my rock ever since that. And, and I don't think that it has to be like a significant other necessarily, but definitely my community and my family and my closest friends, um, leaning on them to support me and to kind of have those conversations with like somebody who knows you as an individual and as a person, as opposed to a professional where you can have those conversations. Like, I can't believe this is happening to me or, you know, what does this mean? It was really important and, you know, paramount in, in helping me transition. So what I'm hearing, not isolating yourself in that moment was incredibly helpful. Yeah, it was. You know, a lot of people listening to the show, when things are not going well, have a tendency to isolate. What do you think allowed you to, even with your closest friends, say, hey, guys, guess what? I kind of am not digging what I'm doing. And I know this is what I've been heading towards for like 20 plus years. I don't know. It, I feel like I'm not far enough away from it to still see that since it's it's only been maybe about four years. But, you know, besides the actual talking to other people and like some people just aren't going to get it. Right. And yes, very much I'll so. <laughs> A lot of times, if you change, that upsets people that love you. So, you know, sometimes talking to your closest confidants is actually almost a bad idea because they're going to be threatened by the fact that you're changing who you are in a way. Um, 
but I, I wrote a lot also. I did a lot of writing, you know, like composing and songwriting has always been a big part of what it is that I do. And I've always kind of written towards the person that I need to be as opposed to who I am now. So I, I dealt with a lot of it through, you know, communicating my emotions through music. And I'm lucky that I have that outlet. Amazing. Amazing. And so I know we took you down like sort of a side loop. Come back to Beats by Girls, because you were starting to talk about how that sort of exploded into into reality and how that was also, it sounds like part of your healing process, like, or at least this reconciliation process for you. Yeah, it was definitely part of the transition. And, you know, when you look at my resume, or if you were going to talk to the people that hired me or continue to hire me, all of them always bring up Beats by Girls, you know, the fact that I'm engaged with the community, and I'm doing this, you know, gender equity work, it it really, it rings, it, you know, it rings with a lot of people who are interested in working with me. And I still can't believe that it kind of is what it is. I wish I, I wish there were three of me. I wish I had more time to spend, you know, exclusively dedicated towards that project and give it even more of myself. And Erin, let's back up a little bit and talk about what that project is for people who are listening. I'm going to make sure they have the links and all of that fun stuff in the show notes, but maybe you can just explain real quickly what it is so everyone's on the same page. So Beats by Girls is a community initiative. It's a curriculum and it's a, it's a template for kind of autonomous groups of women or people to form Beats by Girls chapters. So what we as an organization do is we provide, you know, I write the curriculum, I do a lot of teacher training resources, um, and then a lot of uh, classroom assets as well. So, you know, these, these people will, they'll get a package where this is how, how the actual classes can, you know, be, in, be conducted, and here's the information you need to know in order to do that. But in addition to the actual just curriculum itself, uh, we... We help to create partnerships locally. So a lot of times, you know, there'll be a group of women that say, you know, hey, I really want this in my community. How do I make it happen? So we help them make it happen. And we connect them with local DJ and production schools that maybe already have a facility that they could be teaching in and then identifying community groups like nonprofits or after school centers and kind of connecting those dots between them. So then you have you know, the resources and technology, you have the community infrastructure, and then coupled with the, you know, the women and the resources for the classroom, they can then actually conduct these Beats by Girls classes. And then we also help them fundraise. So we've actually done really well thus far. And almost every single Beats by Girls chapter runs um, that, you know, all the seats in our classroom are free. Wow. And yeah, so all this money that we raise actually just goes towards paying these teachers to teach the classes, which, you know, is employing women in music technology. So it's it's kind of this, like, nice feedback loop of, you know, teaching a, a younger generation and then also supporting the women who are teaching the classes and trying to be working in this field. That is amazing, Erin. Thanks. <laughs> and how do the girls receive it? I mean, they're, they're young. They're, they're between like nine and 13 for the most part. So I think on their end, they just think it's a ton of fun, you know, 
they're like, yeah, let's make beats. I want to press all the buttons, and I want to, I want to see as many how many buttons can I press as one at one time, you know. So at at some level, I think they're just having a really good time. Um, but you know, underneath that fun, there's a lot of learning and uh, just a change in their general perception of what they might be capable of later on in life, you know, and. I don't think that's something that you're cognizant of when you're younger. You know, when you see your mother do X, Y, and Z, you don't say, oh, wow, moms can do that. You just assume that that's the way it is. So, you know, it's it's providing them a really valid and important role support, which is largely missing in, in those fields. And so does the curriculum actually sort of work those kinds of concepts in? Yeah, there's yeah, every every week they they learn about a new woman producer or a new woman uh, working in music technology and usually it's like uh, coupled with really fun videos you know they learn about Bjork they learn about Missy Elliott um so there yeah it's definitely very purposefully done oh my gosh Erin I wish you did beats by beats by women's too for women (laughs) like me that are non-musically inclined (laughs) We do sometimes we do have these beats by ladies classes as fundraising events and they're just kind of these like one off things. And we've done a couple in LA and New York. But yes, you're right. We should we should it should be all ages. <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm like, I wanna learn about Missy Elliott and how she does her thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. It sounds fun, right? It totally does. And what do you see like when you look at some of the girls when they come in versus when they come out of the program like what are some of those intangibles that you see I think it's hard to really quantify it especially because a lot of times you know we'll have these 12 16 concentrated weeks together you know I don't even teach these classes anymore a lot of other women are doing the teaching so they're a little bit more on the front lines but from students that I had when Beats by Girls was early in its sort of conception um, and of having kept up with a lot of those, there definitely are a few of them that are still very engaged in making music um, and DJing. This one in particular, um, her name's Amarique, and she goes by DJ I Am Unique now. <laughs> adorable. I know it is. It's super adorable. And, um, you know, she's still out there. She's still doing it. So, you know, I, I think that it's it's not going to be the thing that every single girl's like, I'm going to be a music producer. Um, some of them definitely uh, will continue to do it throughout their lives. But more than anything, I think the takeaway is that they're actually switching their mindsets in terms of perceiving technology and music production to be something that is done by men. Now they're seeing these just these general concepts and, and ideas as possibilities that anybody can do this stuff. So... I think it it just changes their uh, perception of what women do for a living. And I have to think, or maybe this is just wishful thinking, that when girls are seeing, I can be an astronaut, I can make beats for a living, I can do all of these different things that are traditionally male roles, that it doesn't pigeonhole them into any of those one things, but opens up those doors of possibility. Yeah, one would hope, right? (laughs) I think that's true, though. I, I really do. It's like these cultural changes, and these shifts take decades. You know, there there was uh, like 50 years ago, every doctor was a man, right? And now yep. 
pre-med students, there's like over 50% of them are females. So, you know, that change took up, you know, decades, but I, I think that we're, we'll see the same thing on most of these tech um, careers as well, that eventually there'll be a, like a real equity that exists. Because I imagine, are, are you mostly surrounded by men when you're working in that creative space? I mean, because I work so much in gender equity, I personally do find myself working with a lot of women, but just because I, I, I search that out, you know, I'm looking for those women, I'm teaching those women. Um, and my, my boss is just like this goddess of a woman that I work for as well. So before I started doing all this work, I was definitely surrounded by men and at Berkeley, it's still definitely, you know, fighting the patriarchy for the most part. (laughs) But I I work with a lot of women. I work with a lot of men too, though. So I think I'm in a unique position where I experience a little bit more equity than most people do. And I think there's something to be said, like when you are are working in that space or you're, you're putting out that vibe for lack of better term, like you can find it. Like I've been laughing, you know, as my husband and I are trying to buy a house, like we've assembled this, like, you know, Craig and I were jokingly call it our dream team of home buying women. Cause you know, our attorneys, (laughs) our attorney's a woman, our agent was a woman, our banker is a woman. (laughs) Like we're just surrounded by women and it's, it's, I think when you try to put that energy out into the world, it can come back. I believe that as well. Yes. Well, Erin, I know you're juggling all of these things. And I know you talked a little bit about the seasonality of your work. But I have to ask, because this is what my tribe really always wants to hear about, is how do you keep the train on the tracks and not totally burn out? (laughs) It's a good question. I I deal with my anxiety a lot better now than I did when I was younger. And, you know, again, I'll give a lot of credit to my husband for being the person that receives the brunt end of a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my frustration and anger. Um, but I don't know. I just, I guess the older I get, the, the more I realize that there's, I can't control everything and why stress about something that I'm not in control of. So the more I'm able to do that, you know, I just worry about and take care of the things that I can control and sort of let the rest go. And, you know, I realize that there's always this pile, this mountain of work that's going to have to get done. And even when I finish one pile, there's another one. So you just kind of, you know, get used to the fact that there's just always going to be a crap load of work to do and eventually it will get done, you know, and put it aside and sit on the couch, drink a glass of wine and watch TV for an hour and then wake up in the morning and start working again. You know, the more I stress, the less I, the less productive I am. So I really put a concerted effort towards, you know, not stressing if I if I can because I just don't find it to be productive. So very true. I mean, we only have so much energy in a day, right? Like literally on a cellular level, we're only able to produce so much energy. And yeah. we can spend it freaking out about the piles of stuff mounting up around us or 
<laughs> we can try this other view. Yeah. And it, I think it's difficult to get there. It's like so much easier said than done. It's like telling somebody who suffers from anxiety, like, Hey, just chill out, man. <laughs> um, and I think that it's, it's just something you come to terms with over time. And the more stress you deal with, I think the kind of the, and, and over the longer periods of time, you know, the closer you get to that, it just, I, I wish there was some magic phrase where, you know, a 22 year old, you could say, Hey, don't stress about that. Like you can't control it. And then it would actually occur to, to them <laughs> to not stress. But it's really something you just have to kind of like experience for yourself and learn. If only that came in pill form, right? <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. Erin, was there a tipping point for you when you, when that phrase, I can't control everything really sunk in, like had something happened or did you just wake up one day? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I wish yeah. <laughs> I no, like try, I'm racking my brain right now. Um, it definitely happened. I'd say like when I was 29, maybe like right on that, right on that cusp of becoming 30. I don't know. It's like that return of Saturn. Isn't that what they say? <laughs> <laughs> so just kind of a maturity thing. It sort of naturally evolved. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, my personality has softened considerably since. Amen. Since I, exactly right. <laughs> From when my when I was in my twenties, and I look back, I'm like, wow, I was so intense. Um, and I just, you know, I'm not I'm definitely not that way anymore. So yeah, I think it is just like a maturation over long periods of time. Do you think it's just an age thing? I'm, and this is. I wonder about this question. So if you don't have an answer, I totally get it. No, I don't. Because I've definitely met some women who are considerably younger than me that are so much more mentally with it. And then I, I, I meet people who are considerably older who still haven't figured it out. Um, you know, I think that everybody has their own unique journey. And... Some people are more attuned to listening to what's happening to them than others. And some people just refuse to listen and tune it out. So, you know, I, I don't think, you know, there's, I don't think it's an age thing. Just think it's like a, it's a person thing. Got it. And I wanted to ask, because again, you're juggling so many things. How do you nourish creativity for yourself? I seem to be my best when I'm eating well, when I'm exercising. I try to spend some time meditating and making sure that I'm investing in my personal life as well. So I actually have to do a lot of work to be <laughs> to be my best so I can do a lot of work, which is seems sort of counterintuitive, but I really have to invest in myself and the people that I love in order to be my best self professionally. I want to thank you for sharing that point because I think that's something that surprises a lot of the people that I know, a lot of the people listening, a lot of my clients, like how important it is to be putting energy and effort into those foundational things like taking care of yourself by eating a, a, the right diet for you, by exercising, by meditating. And 
I want to ask, what did you mean by investing in people? Spending time with them, paying attention to them, you know, not, <laughs> not having dinner and then looking at your cell phone, like actually just leaving it at home and having a conversation with somebody and asking them what they think about things, you know, I think that's missing in a lot of relationships today. And, you know, the more quality time I spend with my husband, the, just the better I feel. <laughs> it's like it's kind of a selfish thing in, in a way, but um, I get by, by giving. I imagine it makes him feel better too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's with, with most marriages, you know. <laughs> it's like when the other person is miserable, then you're definitely going to be miserable too. And if the other person is happy, then you're happy. Yeah, what's the what's the old expression like when mom is happy, everyone's happy? <laughs> yeah. Happy wife, happy life. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Aaron, if you don't mind sharing, what do some of these habits look like on a daily basis? Like when you say you're you're investing in yourself and in your self-care. Like what does that look like in terms of diet for you? Well, I happen to be pregnant right now. Congratulations. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, it's been a little bit different recently. <laughs> um, I had a very difficult first trimester. And so I was pretty much only able to eat like things that I basically just ate bagels and spaghetti for three months, <laughs> which is not what I consider. I would consider a, a, a balanced diet, but um, and actually, I think that this is a really interesting thing that your um, tribe might be interested in. But th through stressing out um, for so long and also some some genetic kind of parts of my makeup, I, I got an autoimmune disease uh, in my late 20s. Uh, and a lot of it, uh, I think, is due to overuse of antibiotics and um, just my cortisol levels being like, I was just, my adrenal glands had been drained for so long. So I've been stressing out for so long mm -hmm. that I actually um, got a thyroid condition. And when it came time to kind of deal with it, you know, I had been taking anti-inflammatories for a really, really long time. And it was just kind of ruining my stomach. And it, I, I also knew that I wanted to have a baby. So a few years ago, I, um, I went on something called the autoimmune protocol. And it was a complete lifestyle change, mostly which had to do with food. Yep. And I, I was able to homeopathically treat my disease. And I had been, I had been symptom free for almost two full years by basically avoiding dairy, wheat, and soy. And it was difficult at first, but that's what it looked like for me. I, I really, really had to make some huge sacrifices with the things I put past my lips. <laughs> um, but it was worth it. And surprisingly, uh, all autoimmune issues go into remission while you're pregnant. So even if you had multiple sclerosis, you know, you would, you would be asymptomatic for the entire length of your pregnancy. And... So I've been kind of able to eat whatever I want right now. and But you know the day of reckoning may come again. Six months from now. <laughs> I know it's coming. Um, but it's also, you know, I, I, I know I'm eating. I'm like, you know, I have another human body inside of me. So it's really important to 
nurture that as well. So I'm, I'm trying my best, but oddly enough, food has been a huge part of me controlling my stress. Yes. And there's a lot of reasons that we could unpack, like physiologically speaking. I mean, anxiety and even some doctors and some research is, is linking depression to inflammation. Mm-hmm. So it all makes sense. And I, I want to thank you for sharing that because I, I do think it's interesting to the tribe. And it's something I personally had to go through as well to kind of get my thyroid back into fight and shape, so to speak. And it is a real struggle. And I, what I especially like hearing, because I, you know, I know sometimes when people are feeling banged up, and especially with my clients, and they're like, I know I got to take out these foods, but I just, I love beer, and I love pizza, and I love these things so much, and they're a huge part of my identity, and this is so hard. I like the grace that you're giving yourself, you know, while you're pregnant. Like, you know what? Eating a bagel is better than not eating anything or throwing up all day, right? Like being able to make those choices, but it sounds like you made them in this really like healthy way and not this like, I'm going to eat the bagel and then whip myself for the next three months. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I I don't feel bad about it at all. (laughs) Being pregnant is really difficult. So, uh, you know. I'm okay with the bagel. <laughs> Which is a bonus that the autoimmune issues abate because you've got so many other crazy symptoms going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's like having a different disease for... I mean, I, I'm starting to feel a lot better now, so I well, shouldn't call it a disease, but it's, it's <laughs> definitely physically challenging. There's going to be a therapy session from that comment <laughs> right <know>. there. <laughs> well, it is, it's a parasite, right? And, and living off of all of my bodily function. (laughs) (laughs) It is very true. And Erin, I know this question is probably going to change based on being a mama-to-be. What did exercise typically look like for you? And, you know, you can even share what it looks like now. Well, before the autoimmune issues, I would do a lot of running and yoga. And I, I loved yoga. It was, I mean, it's like a moving meditation. So I kind of got the meditation and the exercise part done simultaneously. And um, I definitely credit a lot of my focus towards doing yoga. Mm-hmm. And then when I got sick, I just really wasn't able to move the same way. And I was you know, in addition to the thyroid issue, I was I was experiencing a lot of uh, muscular skeletal symptoms as well, just like a lot of full body pain. And, you know, before, before the, my thyroid started really acting up, I, I kind of wasn't symptomatic. So, you know, people were like, well, maybe you have fibromyalgia, I just kind of these like inexplicable pains that so many women are experiencing now. Yes. Um, And so it got really difficult for me to exercise for a while. And my husband's a personal trainer. So I'm kind of surrounded by like the fitness industry half the time. Um, So I I worked with him. And so I I would train with him about two times a week and just like slowly rehabilitate. And now that I'm pregnant, I I do a lot of walking. (laughs) 
that's exercise enough these days, right? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard. I've been doing some like prenatal yoga and stuff. Um, I I wish I really wish I could be more active because I I was when I was younger and it helps me out so much. But you know, currently my body's just not in a position where I can be you know like running a five k or anything like that. I'm just kind of surviving right now. Yeah, it's not the kind of activity you want to pick up when you become pregnant. You know, like no. if you were a marathon runner or something before, great, but <laughs> yeah, no, just, just long walks. How do you fit it in, in your day? Cause that's something my tribe really struggles with. I mean, I struggle with it too. And some days I don't get around to it because I've got a lot to do. Um, but on the days when I do have time, you know, instead of, you know, giving into the urge to just sit down and do nothing, I, I will make myself go walk around the pond or do some yoga. You know, I, I try to make it something that I do at least three times a week. And I, I would like to do it much more than that. But I think there's a balance between, you know, being forgiving and saying, all right, you know, this day is going to be a long one and I'm going to be working all day long, but tomorrow I'm going to spend some time on myself. And, you know, you have to make those compromises. Yes. I think that's important. What helps you get there? I just know that if I do it, I'm going to feel a lot better. (laughs) And if I don't, I'm going to kind of crumble. So it's, it's just, I think it's in the knowledge of what the consequences of doing it and not doing it are really. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I mean, it's everything that you're saying is almost a a personal mantra to me, where it's, okay, I can take tomorrow off because I'm in sessions all day. And I didn't, I didn't plan ahead with my calendar or people snuck on my calendar before I could block out some free time for myself. And it's, that's what it is today. But for me, I always have to kind of recognize, like, I can't let that go more than two days or three days. Like, I got to make sure that I'm fitting in something. And it may not be my first choice of an activity to work out, but, you know, like, I might want to go for a hike, but I don't have the time to do it. But I can fit in a 30-minute yoga class in my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I use those. I have, like, a yoga app. <laughs> like I'll just find – and it's got so many different – classes and different times I'm like all right search for the 20 minute class (laughs) and I'll just find one and I'll just do it you know and you feel so much better so are you working out at home a lot yes okay totally got it got it and Erin I know we've we've you talked about kind of when you were changing careers and feeling a little burnout then and then you've kind of shared the autoimmune condition you know what lessons were mined from those sort of moments of kind of being spent? I think that for a really long time, I played a victim and I felt bad for myself and that all of my efforts to, or anything I could have done to help myself, I was just really caught up in the feeling bad part. And at some juncture, I just decided that I was going to be in charge and that I was going to totally change my attitude towards the fact that I had a disease. 
So I was really upset about it and um, felt like it was unfair. You know, you have to really just take responsibility for it and stop feeling bad for yourself. And it might be a really harsh thing to say. And a lot of people aren't ready to hear those things. And I wasn't for a long time. Um, but I think that's the biggest lesson I learned is that you just you can't you can't play the victim and you can't feel bad for yourself. You, know, you have to because if you're not going to help yourself, like nobody can. So I think it. I learned the most about, you know, feeling like I'm I'm in control and I'm powerful and that helped me to heal myself because nobody else did it. Like no doctor did it. There was no pill that did it. It was purely me deciding that I wasn't going to deal with this shit anymore. And it was, it took a long time to get there. Um, and you know, I think that's something that kind of translates into all parts of your life. You know, like you can sit around and be bummed or you can get up and do something about it. What helped you make that leap? Because I had that leap when I was dealing with unremitting irritable bowel syndrome in my 20s. Like I had that moment where, thanks, doc, for this handful of prescriptions and samples and you're not listening to me. And that was, you know, and again, going back to some of our early comments, I was a little bit more feisty in my youth as well. And I was sort of, you know, got outside and it was in New York. So I think it was like on the Upper East Side. I think I cried for the first block. Like, woe is me. How can this happen? Like, why am I having to triangulate for a bathroom at any given moment? And this is like controlling not even just my social life, but like my life in general. Yeah. And then the second block was, wait a minute, that, that doctor didn't even make eye contact with me for most of the appointment. Like, did they even did they even see me as a human being? I think I was just a checklist of symptoms. And then that third block for me was, oh, fuck this. Like, there, I don't know what the way is, but there has to be another option here because this option sucks. <laughs> yeah. As I bounce that off of you, what, what helped you? I feel like <laughs> the reason why I was able to pull it off, because I had been searching for answers for a really long time, and I stumbled upon a book called The Autoimmune Recovery System um, that was written by kind of a functional medicine specialist. So she was an MD, um, but also kind of worked outside of the realms of like Western medicine. Um, and so I had, I, had, I had the knowledge and I knew what I needed to do and I knew what the sacrifices were going to be. Um, but I think really the thing that made it able for me to pull it off was the fact that I wanted to have a baby and I knew I wasn't going to be able to take the anti-inflammatories while I was pregnant. And so a few years before we started, you know, it, it really became, it was finally important enough for me to, you know, take care of myself. You know, I wish, I wish that I could say like, you know, I'll just one day I was like, I care so much about myself, but in, in a lot of ways it was, I care so much about my husband and I care so much about the fact that I want to be a mom and I want to have a child that like, I'm ready to take on the responsibility to do this. Um, so that's what it was for me, you know, 
And I, I wish it, I was able to do that a lot earlier because I would have saved myself a huge amount of pain and suffering. Um, but it, you know, it, it took a long time to get there. And I, I applaud you for sharing all that. And I think you're right. Like, it's not always a, a switch. It's a reaction. Like, the pain of dealing with this current situation is no longer acceptable if it's become the obstacle to this goal. Yeah. I wish I could say I was cooler than, for me, like, that three-block change in mindset was really like, I'm going to show this doctor. Like, she's not helping me. Like, I am just going to prove this woman wrong. <laughs> I'm going to show you. <laughs> like, I'll show you. I won't be like, you know, shitting my pants in public anymore. <laughs> well, I guess she helped you in the long run then, didn't she? <laughs> she did. She did. But it it is funny. Like, these moments never come easy or they never come in this, like, nice, neat package, right? Like, there yeah. is, like, that... That period of agony where we're like, yeah, that tack I'm sitting on is now annoying. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, no more. I've, <laughs> I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> Got it. And Aaron, I want to be mindful of, of time and your time because I'm gobbling up a bunch of it. And I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you some of the questions that I like to ask all my guests. And some of these are a little bit practical and some are really gender equity focused. So I think you'll probably dig some of those questions, hopefully. Okay. Um, how do you organize and manage your tasks on a day-to-day -day basis? I have a to-do list. <laughs> it might sound really old school, but... <laughs> are you paper or digital? I'm digital. I have a you know, I have a little sticky note right on my desktop that's like all the things I need to do and I, I see them. And I also, I, I do have kind of like a board that sits in my studio and each, there's a little card for each project I'm working on. So I'm kind of cognizant of what's happening later, what's happening now, um, you know, and what my calendar is. But I, uh, I was just in a faculty meeting the other day and somebody asked me to do something and I said, oh, let me put it on my to-do list. And then he goes, hey, everybody, Erin put something on her to-do list so we know it's getting done. <laughs> um, because I, I, I'm like the most type A kind of anal person in my department and they, they like hate me and love me for it. Um, but if I write it down, it will get done. <laughs> come hell, come high water, right? <laughs> yeah, it will. And how do you prioritize things? Because this is also another question that, that comes up, especially for the people who are really organized about having a list. How do you decide, you know, you wake up on a Friday morning and think, what do I need to do today? You know, it can be really difficult. And some, it, in one moment, I'll, I'll feel one way. And then in another, I'll feel another, a completely opposite. But you know, things that are time sensitive and things that have deadlines, they need to get done. Um, and I tend to do those things first um, so that I'm actually like a week ahead of my deadline so that I can kind of focus on other stuff. I like to be like way, way ahead of schedule. The type um, A woman in me salutes the type A woman <laughs> in you. I know, right? It's like, wow, if I... My my father has this mantra that I kind of live by. He's like, the things that you want to do the least do them first. Get them out of the way. Yeah. It's like, okay, you don't want to eat that. All right. Eat it really fast so that you can really enjoy the, like the portion of your meal that you're looking forward to. <laughs> um, so I just sit down and I do the things I don't want to do. Like if grading seems 
like something I don't want to do right now, then I sit down and I do it. And that might be like sick and twisted in some way, but I just do the things I don't want to do first. And how does that serve you? Like what's the, what's the, what's the result of taking that course of action? I have more time to enjoy the process of doing the work I do want to do, you know, because if I, like, for instance, making music is something I really like to do. And, and I'm, I'm working on a mix right now for a young artist I'm really intrigued by. And I have another grant that I'm working on right now. And so if I know I have two of those things to, that I have to do, I'll do the grant work first so that I can really enjoy mixing and like producing this young artist. Otherwise, if I don't and I and I'm in the mixing process or I'm producing, I'll be thinking about the fact that I have to do this other thing afterwards and I don't want to do that. So it's almost like just, you know, clearing the slate and like end scene. All right. Now on to just being fully present for the things I want to do. Um, and it just kind of relieves the relieves my mind from the stress of worrying about having to do the things I don't want to. And is being fully present a challenge for you ever? Oh, yeah. I'm definitely a cerebral person. I'm like living in my head. Definitely not like present in my body and in the moment <laughs> most of the time. Without reminders anyways. Yeah, it's, it's constantly a struggle. And I wish I was better at it. But I'm, I'm definitely thinking a lot of thoughts a lot of the time. So if I can eliminate the ones that I can control then I'll do, I'll do my due diligence to clear my mind of that. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And normally I ask people what's the most inspiring or useful book they've read because I'm a big reader and I know a lot of my listeners are also readers. Um, if you can feel free to answer that question, I guess, I don't know why I didn't think of this sooner, but also is there a piece of music that really you go back to? I I, mean, I guess most recently, um, Gloria Steinem's new novel, On the Road. I really took a lot away from that. Um, just from a female perspective, like listening to the experiences of somebody who's kind of doing the same work that I was doing, like in the 60s and the 70s when, when you know, it's like we, we, we complain about how women are treated now. It's like, some of the stories that I was reading about flight attendants and, you know, just her work with women's rights in the seventies. So it's just like blowing my mind um, and kind of reaffirmed a lot of the things that I had thought. And she articulated a lot of things that I had been thinking in a way that was really eloquent. Um, so I think that's definitely <laughs> my most inspiring book right now. I, uh, Whenever I'm feeling down, I I listen to George Michael. <laughs> I love it. I think yeah. like sometimes like when I've talked to artists, you know, that it has to be some like really lofty answer. So I love your, I can hear you smiling through the, through Skype. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes I just, I don't know. I, I took his death pretty hard. I'm not going to lie. It's like it was a bad year, right? Like lots of people died. Yes. Like you know, and these huge, huge, um, you know, influences on so many people's lives. And, you know, when George Michael passed, like, oddly enough, that one hit me the worst. Is, are you like the slow jam? Or 
are you the more upbeat stuff? Because I feel like there's a divide here. I like it all. You know, just he's he's an amazing writer, amazing vocalist, and he was just unapologetic, you know, about who he was. And you can feel it in the music. It's like when he's happy, he's happy. When he's sad, he's sad. When he's trying to uplift you, he's he's doing that one hundred percent. And yeah, I just I just love him. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you. We we talked about some of your habits, but what are some of your most impactful habits? And I would say maybe specifically, what's the thing that's non negotiable in the morning, and maybe what's the thing that's non negotiable in the later half of the day? Well, sleeping is non-negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I make sure that I get at least eight hours of sleep a night. And now that I'm pregnant, I'm actually pushing about 10. I sleep so much. And <laughs> so I guess that's neither morning or night. It's a little bit of both. both. <laughs> yeah, I sleep. And that's kind of non-negotiable. Otherwise, I just, I can't, I can't do anything if I don't get enough sleep. Um, I feel you. I read before I go to bed. You know, it's just like turn the screen off, just like look at a piece of paper for a moment, at least even if it's just five minutes, I, I have to kind of like disengage from technology. Otherwise, I have trouble sleeping. So do that. And I guess the only other thing that I think I see a lot of successful people doing is uh, being on time. That's a big one for me. I'm making sure I'm out of the house five minutes before I need to be just so I'm always on time wherever I'm going. I hate being late. I hate it when people are late. And I think that it served me very well. How has it served you? Because I'm there. I'm there on time. I mean, I, I just find it to be disrespectful when people don't value your time, you know, so you have to, you have to pay that forward. If somebody asks you to be someplace at a certain time, you show up at that time. Otherwise you don't really respect them in a way. And I, you know, maybe that's seems binary in a way, but I just, I, lateness is a pet peeve of mine that I can't, I just can't deal with it. I 100% agree. And I'm also that person that when someone says, let's do lunch, I actually believe that they want to have lunch with me at some foreseeable point, you know, not that like, it's just kind of the sign off from a conversation like, yeah, let's get together again. Like I really take it serious. And then I also completely resonate with your, your being on time as a, as paying someone respect. Yeah, totally. I hate it when people aren't on time. And I had to laugh because for me, there was a point where I went from being a really on-time person, if not early person, to like lollygagging and fiddling around with things before I left. And then I found I always like showed up places like sweaty and disheveled because I had to like half run, half walk places to actually like make it on time. <laughs> See, which was better? Yeah, <laughs> being on time. <laughs> there you go. And when you're feeling drained or totally spent or not creative, what do you do to revive yourself? I will write. Um, there's there's a book called The Artist Way. Oh, the Julia Cameron book, right? Yes, exactly. That there's just some general sort of tools that she outlines. 
and it's it's a commitment doing the whole 12 weeks <laughs> um, and, I, and the, the book's actually about creative recovery so I think when I first started engaging with her ideas it was it was more just from writer's block um, but she suggests that you write things down and not necessarily even like journaling it's just kind of like a stream of consciousness you know like clear out the cobwebs of whatever's going on in your mind and then just like throwing the pages away. I find that to be really helpful. And so if there's ever a period of time where I'm kind of faced with something that I don't have the capability of handling, I usually start writing and then I'll unpack it myself. You know, it's like, I might not understand it, but somewhere somehow deep down, I I do understand what's happening and I just have to kind of search for it. So I write my thoughts down. Um, And actually, that's how I got to this whole pregnancy thing, because I'm so obsessed with my career that the idea of having a baby um, really threatened me. And I didn't understand why I was so afraid of it. But I really was reluctant at first (laughs) to do this. Um, And through the process of spending time with myself, writing things down, I finally came to the conclusion that my fear of having a child was like really related to um it was more of an identity thing like who am I if I'm not my career you know who am I if I can't spend 60 hours a week working um and then once I once I identified it it was really easy to deal with that once I finally knew what the problem was um so anytime I find myself in a position where you know, I'm flipping out or I can't handle things or I don't know what the answers are, I tend to, I tend to start writing things down. Erin, that is hugely powerful. And I think people listening will really vibe with what you're saying. Would you mind if I asked you some questions about kind of your process? Yeah, sure. So what you were talking about unpacking in terms of like your identity shifting from like this woman who's obsessed with her career to being a mom, like that is a huge leap that you were able to unpack on your own. And I love that. Like I always, I want to help people like as a strategist, like I want to help set them up with tools and give them tools, but I don't want them to have to be dependent on me. Like a lot of times my clients come to me and it's almost like they're they're happy being in the passenger seat and they're they're just ready to hand me the keys to drive them. It's always a little bit strange at first because I'm giving them the keys back and saying you're going to drive and I'm going to be like this the driver's ed teacher, <laughs> right? Like yeah. I got a break on the passenger side. But it's really important to have these kind of tools and know how to use them. So when you're journaling are you starting from a free association place and then kind of plucking questions out? Like how can someone listening maybe follow your steps? So I think when you're writing, it's important not to judge what it is you're doing. Cause that's like the point is to just get it out, whatever it is. <laughs> um, and I don't think that it comes in any specific form. So you know, sometimes I'll sit down to write and I'll have something on my mind, you know, and it, it might be a completely separate topic from what I'll eventually come around to and be like, oh, my mother-in-law, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> um, and then three pages later, I'll actually be talking about the thing that 
is actually my issue. Um, and other days, you know, I'll say, well, today I did this, you know, it, I, I don't think there has to be any specific form. And that's actually the, the less um, structure you put around it, the better. But the important part is that you're putting pen to paper and that you're, you just start because inevitably, it will come. Um, you just have to start moving the pen. So, and that's, you know, they, they say starting's the hardest part. And I, it really is like just sitting down and just start writing and keep going. I, I make myself do three pages at least. Is that a daily uh, practice for you? Like a la artist way or no, what's your flow look like? Again, I just really try not to judge myself. Um, if, if, if you set that goal, like I'm going to do this every day and then you don't do it, you feel like <laughs> crap, you know? So I, I do it when I need it. And it's funny because I, I did it all the way up until I got pregnant. And then the minute I knew I was pregnant, I stopped writing and I haven't written. It's been months now. Um, and I just haven't felt the need to do it. Like I actually feel really calm and sort of at peace with what's happening to me and my body right now. And I don't, I don't need that support, but I'll definitely come back around to it, I'm sure, when, when the gears shift the opposite direction. Um, but for me, it, it's, it's just, you know, I, I think about it like physical therapy, and I imagine your job is similar where you have an injury, right? And then you go and the, and the person does, you know, they manipulate you with their hands, but they also teach you the ways to sort of heal yourself, you know, like push here, pull here, 10 seconds three reps, whatever. Um, and then, you know, the, the idea is that when you're at home and you experience that pain, you can then do those exercises to kind of self-manage. Um, and so I, I treat writings the same, you know, if, if I'm in some sort of a crisis or I need to be doing it, then I'll self-manage by doing the exercises, which for me is, is writing. Um, but I don't make myself do it as a practice. I just use it as a tool. Got it. And spending time on oneself is something the frazzled type A women that I work with really struggle with. So I think everything you said is amazing and useful and really, really helpful. But I think one of the biggest obstacles is women, and especially women that are working moms, right? They have so many things going on that that kind of stuff goes out the window when they get going. Like they look at their what they have to do for the day and then they're like, well, shit, I can't spend 15 minutes writing about myself, <laughs> writing for myself. Like what advice would you have for those women? Find the time. <laughs> <laughs> do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the result of not doing it is so much more, it, it's so much more of an impact on your family and your children than not than doing it. You know, taking the 15 minutes and the benefits that you'll get from actually just being centered for a moment, and then you can be better for your children and better for your family um, than if you didn't do it. So in a lot of ways, it's by taking those 15 minutes, it makes the other 23 hours and 45 minutes that much more effective. Thank you for sharing that because I think it's important for women to hear it, not just me nagging, <laughs> um, but also 
also to hear it from another woman who's been on the other side. Because when you are feeling stressed out and when you are feeling anxious and when you are feeling overwhelmed, it's hard to know that you'll, like, it's hard to believe that something that, like that could help. And it's, I think it's really important for people to hear from someone who's made that jump. Yeah, and I, t- I totally understand just not wanting to hear it. Sometimes people don't want to be better. You know, being stressed out is an addiction. Yes. And if you're not stressed, then, you know. What would we all talk about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I've come to terms with the fact that I definitely have a work addiction. I don't, I don't feel like I'm addicted to stress any longer. I was. Um, and you know, they say like acknowledgement is the first step, (laughs) something like that. So I, I can tell like, I need to chill out right now. Like I need to, I need to stop working and I'll just, I'll stop, you know? Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And Erin, I want to hear, I'm, I'm extra excited to hear your opinion about these next few questions. Okay. How would you define being a modern woman? I was thinking about this. Um, I think that being a modern woman means uh, living like a man <laughs> in, in some ways where, you know, you're, you're not living with some sort of a boundary. You know, like I make the majority of the money in my relationship. I have a career. I'm going to be the mom. Like you really can do whatever it is you set your mind to. And that's really what men have been told their entire lives and we really haven't um so (laughs) i guess for lack of a better (laughs) lack of a better explanation it's like live like a man would you know don't ever tell yourself no there aren't any boundaries just do do what you want and so based on that what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about i wish that women cared more about supporting other women who are doing the same things. You know, I, I think that we, we fight against each other just as any minority group does that uh, there's such a limited space for us to shine or for us to be showcased that we tend to fight against each other. Um, and, and I wish more women cared about helping each other out. Um, and it's super powerful when we do, so I, I wish I wish that. <laughs> and I think what was also interesting in what you said too, this notion that we believe it's a limited space. And that's where I have to wonder, like, are we boxing ourselves in and really making it a zero sum game, right? Like if this woman gets to do this, then somehow this other woman won't get to. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It doesn't it doesn't have to be just a small space. Like we can, we can be visible. <laughs> we can all be visible. Yes. And on the flip side, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I need to work on this myself also, but I, I feel like women in general need to give less, a sh- less of a shit about coming off as a bitch. Um, <laughs> My boss is just, she's a huge influence and inspiration of mine. She's in her, like, 
early 60s and she just is so in charge and she gets a lot of respect and you know whenever I have a situation that I have to deal with that I'm not exactly sure how to because I'm worried that someone's gonna you know think oh Aaron's being a bitch um you know I'll go to Bonnie and I'll say like this is what happening this is what's happening what would you do and she'll just flat out say you know the right thing and I'll, you know, I'll think to myself, oh, God, you know, like, how, <laughs> how am I going to say that? And, she, you know, she her her view on it is that if you're not a bitch, you're a doormat. Right. It's like it, or people's views of you. It's like either someone's just going to walk all over you. And the only alternative in most people's minds is that if you're not that, then that makes you a bitch, you know, then yep. fine, be a bitch, you know. And so I try to be a little less worried about how somebody views me because of you know the actions or the words that are going to come out of my mouth that are completely valid and uh, necessary you know and I just wish that we would care a little bit less about being viewed you know in that light because it's going to happen if you if you do anything besides roll over yeah and it's it's so important it's so so important and you know, what's so bad about being a bitch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, besides societies, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting word. It's an interesting idea, but it's like the equivalent to asshole, right? For a guy. Like, yep. what an ass. <laughs> like, All right, fine. I'll be an asshole. If that, if that means that I'm getting the job done and I'm, you know, doing the right thing, then you can call me whatever you want to call me. And it is really hard for women, like, being being assertive, right? Like, I think we forget sometimes that there's somewhere in between aggressive and doormat, right? Like, that there's, there is this sweet spot somewhere on the continuum known as assertive where we can say no and be empowered and, like, not have to guilt, feel guilty for it, right? Yeah, no, I think there's, it's, there's definitely shades of gray, but... From a lot of other people's perspectives, it's like a binary thing, you know. So regardless of your actions, you know, you might be right in the middle there, very appropriately and respectfully saying your point, you know. Um, and the person on the other side is going to view that as you being aggressive, just because you just because you said how you felt, which is not an aggressive act. That's a, that's an act of communication, <laughs> um, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a bitch. I just think I wish women were less concerned about being perceived as one. What's helped you shed that? Practice. Um, Again, my boss, she's just been a huge influence. Seeing her in meetings, you know, the majority of the people that we work with are men. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll I'll, I'll watch watch men uh, sort of try to derail her agenda you know, she'll come with some sort of like list of things that we need to address at a meeting. And then all of a sudden, some guy will just, you know, chime in and be like, well, actually, I was, you know, and start talking about something that's completely off topic. And she'll say, excuse me, Jim, that's not what this meeting's about right now. And I really need to stay on topic. So we're going to talk about that another time. And he'll just she'll just shut him down, you know, (laughs) and it's it's her job to do that. She's just doing her job. She's the chair of the department. And it's, it's her responsibility to, like, address the things that need to be addressed. Um, and the first couple of times she did it, it shocked me. It was just absolutely shocking 
to see somebody do that. Um, and so just through, you know, that same role support that I was talking about giving the Beats by Girls um, students, she gives that to me um, where I see another woman, you know, acting like a boss and I get to see what that's like. And so when I see her do it, it makes it a lot easier when I put it into application myself. Can you imagine if every woman listening literally just took the reins like that three times, even three times a year, and like what that would do to other women who were, who were watching her model that? Yeah, it would be, we'd, we'd get that cultural shift a little bit faster than the coming few decades. <laughs> right can you imagine like even if it was just something as small as three times a year like for three times a year be brave in that way it's hard to do it once for a lot of people especially if you've never done it before um but then when the first time you do it the second time's a lot easier i'll tell you that much (laughs) the band-aid's off (laughs) yeah and it's i still you know i still have reservations and and i question myself but at the end of the day, I, I know what has to be done. And so I just come to that conclusion much quicker. We're like, all right, you know, this is just the way it has to be. So why fight it? I'm just going to go ahead and do this. Whereas before I might, you know, mull it over a little bit longer and, and then just feel bad about it. So again, it's like, I can't control, I can't control how somebody else perceives me. So that's absolutely pointless to stress about it. And if we are doing anything but lie on our couch all day, we are going to piss some people off and we are going to empower other people and every other scenario in between. Right. So like letting go of that just frees you up. I imagine. Yeah. Just do you right. Can't, you can't do something for anybody else. Otherwise just, it never works out in the end anyways. (laughs) Amazing. Erin, you have shared so many amazing insights and I think there's so much for people to take away from this episode. I can't thank you enough. And I'm going to make sure to have links to find you all over social media and website. But if, if women want to connect with you and your work, what's, what's your favorite way for them to do that? Um, I'm pretty active on Facebook. So I have, I have an artist page. It's Aaron Mama Barra. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm the most active in terms of like everything that's happening on the daily there. Um, but if you want to get a closer look at kind of my body of work and, and the range of things that I do, I would visit uh, mamabara.com. It's M-A-M-M-A-B-A-R-R-A.com. Which is quite literal now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Now I am actually Mama Barra. Yes. <laughs> well, again, Many, many thanks, Erin. This was amazing to to catch up with you. And I encourage all the women listening to check out what you're doing because it there is just no end to the cool stuff you're producing in the world. And thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Hey, y'all, this is Kara again. Many thanks for tuning in and listening all the way to this point in the show. 
As I mentioned in the episode, you can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode. So if you heard us mention a book or an album or a consultant or whatever that is, know that you can literally just go to the show notes and click. I want to make it as easy as possible for you to be getting into action. And I just wanted to remind you that that can all be found over at LeVitalCore, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. And new shows will be up on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. And if you don't want to have to remember that fact and you want me to just remind you, please sign up for the newsletter. It comes out a couple times a month. And not only will you be notified of podcast episodes to roll out and who that guest is and a link to find the show and the show notes, you will find health and lifestyle tips, tools, and sometimes the occasional dose of tough love from yours truly. So again, if you're looking to sign up, go to levitalcoresalon.com, so L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S salon.com and scroll down to the bottom of pretty much any page and click on get emails from me and you will be like two minutes or less depending how fast you type away from receiving a couple of emails a month from me so again thank you for listening hopefully that gets you all the resources that you need and before i sign off for today i want to give a big merci beaucoup to producer craig snyder to amazing theme show writing wizard Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and High Dials for performing it. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down. See you next time. <laughs>